0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Scraps. As we always say, it's your podcast where we, on your behalf, explore the personalities and the stories of people in science and innovation. We have fantastic news to share with all of you. With the help of you, our loyal listeners, we are now ranked in the top 10% of all science podcasts. That is a momentous achievement uh, for Jojo and I, but but we're not going to rest on our, wor- our laurels so far we're going to keep bringing you these stories to ears and also are planning some really cool projects that are garnering some steam at this point so stay tuned for news about those in the, in the next few weeks and please share your favorite podcast with a typo in its name it scraps with a k and sparks spelled backwards it really is that simple now let's get into the show
1: In my career, I had several opportunities to work with my sister. We'd grown up enough, and our positions within the same company were sufficiently different that we didn't have the chance or the need for sibling infighting. It was a great arrangement, and I definitely valued my time with her. My sister and I had not spoken in over a decade. That's a whole different story for a whole nother time with a whole lot of cocktails. But she recently reached out to me, and we were quickly and easily finding ourselves back in the rhythm of sisterhood. For that reason, this week's episode is pretty important to me personally. Our guests today are not only good friends of mine, they are like the brothers that I never had and are literally brothers to each other. With that, I'd like to welcome Drs. Theo and Stavros Zanos of the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us. And congratulations.
0: Thank you. So can you tell us a bit about your backgrounds, Uh, because both of you have very storied backgrounds and, and are very similar, yet so dissimilar in terms of what you do. Um, so t- tell us a bit about that. And you guys can pick uh, between who wants to go first, the older brother or the younger brother, uh, depending on who who won when you were young at the t- at home.
2: Uh, I don't know. I'll let the older brother speak, I guess.
0: OK,
3: so that was Theo. <laughs> Uh, So yeah, I am older. Um, I um, started with a medical degree in Thessaloniki. Uh, During the uh, last two years, uh, I developed uh, an affinity for uh, neuroscience. Um, I worked with a neurologist that had a particular interest in uh, human neurophysiology, EEG brain mapping. after medical school in Greece, uh, you are required to uh, undergo certain steps that are mandatory. Uh, you have to serve as a physician in a small village somewhere in Greece for a year. So I did that. Um, I went to, I joined the military. Uh, that's also mandatory uh, for um, almost a year and a half. And um, and after all that was done, I started my residency uh, in internal medicine. Uh, that was uh, uh, two years. Um, after which, um, I, I I never lost my connection to neuroscience, even though it was more academic. Like I was reading papers and, and you know news on uh, from the internet. Um, and during that time, I um, I approached some people at the University of Washington that I knew. Um, We all thought that it may be a good idea for me to pursue a Ph.D. um, in neuroscience, since I liked neuroscience research so much. So that was the next chapter in my career. I moved to the U.S. Um, Did a Ph.D. in uh, systems neuroscience, in brain-computer interfaces, and human and non-human primate uh, neurophysiology with Ed Fetz and Jeff Ogerman. And Jeff Ogerman's dad, uh, George Ogerman, actually. Um, So I had three mentors in reality. and then after that, I uh, I think I needed some um, job security because uh, the academic uh, job market was uh, and still is not great in the U.S. Um, so I, uh, since I had finished my internal medicine residency, I uh, went back to Greece and I did a cardiology fellowship, just in case research doesn't uh, pay the bills. Um, of course, my uh, you know my uh, personal preference has always been to uh, work in research. So after that was done, I came back into the states and uh, and started my postdoc. And from there, uh, two and a half years of postdoc, um, I uh, moved to Feinstein uh, and started the translational neurophysiology lab. Theo. Yeah, so
2: um, I guess my my uh, my career started there uh, after I um, I finished my engineering degree in uh, in Greece. Uh, while I was doing my engineering degree, I visited the University of Washington actually uh, through the same connections that Stavros mentioned, and I did a summer internship there, and uh, that really. Um, the, the whole uh, U.S. academia was uh, a very enticing. Uh, you know, attending a, a U.S. university was quite impressive, and I was working on uh, EEG uh, and fMRI data at that time. Uh, so I I applied to uh, different U.S. schools. I got admitted to uh, USC, uh, to the Biomedical Engineering Department, where I did my master's and PhD. Um, I did it with uh, uh, Vasilis Marmorellis and Ted Berger on cognitive neuroprosthesis, um, focusing mainly on the computational aspect of it. Um, after that, I decided that I, I wanted to have a neurophysiology experience, so I, uh, I turned to visual uh, neuroscience and uh, primate neurophysiology, non-human primates. Um, so I joined the uh, the lab of Christopher Pack at McGill uh, at the Montreal Neurological Institute Um, and there I did my postdoc and and worked a lot on Utah arrays recording from the visual cortex of monkeys uh, running again a lot of computational models machine learning models to decode this activity uh, that we were recording there and then um, in 2016 I was recruited at uh, Feinstein. I think I was actually the first uh, uh, PI to join the institute. Back then, it was the Center for Bioletronic Medicine. Um, And uh, the first junior PI, I would say, I should say. And then uh, I I managed to lure uh, my brother to the institute uh, about like 10 months later. Uh, So... Um, that was a a nice uh, addition, I think, to the to the institute. So so he joined us in 2017.
0: Yeah. So you actually did not just have enough of him at home. You actually wanted to make sure that he was also part of your work environment. So how is that working out? <laughs> and why did you even do that? So I I, I always so so I always say that uh, uh,
2: if we don't kill each other, I think we're going to do great things. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, Stavros has always been, I guess, because he's an older brother as well. Has always been like a person that I look look up to, and 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 I'm heavily influenced in in a lot of different things. He was the person that really told me that uh, as a computer engineer, I could uh, use some of my skills to in neuroscience. So he was the first one to to develop these interests and. By looking at him, I was like, well, maybe I should look into this type of work as well. And that's what really geared me towards biomedical engineering and and neuroscience. Um, So when I joined the Feinstein, I I noticed that uh, somebody with his skills and experience would be very, very valuable to what we were trying to do at the Institute of Bioelectronic Medicine. So I didn't really force it. It was kind of like a natural thing where I invited him to give a talk mostly so that he can come visit me in New York. He was in Seattle back then. And then uh, I think he did okay. So some some uh, heads were turned and uh, some uh, people started asking, well, is he movable and all that. And then I kind of stepped away because clearly I had a, a conflict of interest So in his hiring. So I uh, then the rest uh, was was part of like Feinstein hiring. but it was good I mean I think uh, we we of course uh, can get into uh, very animated arguments but at the end of the day what uh, what matters is that we have our own uh, uh, way of communicating and uh, usually it ends up being a good collaboration uh, overall. We've we've actually worked before on this uh, because we're all in the, we're in the same field but from different sides. So we've actually published a paper back in 2012 together, and we've all worked with uh, George Judelman and Feds and my and my advisor, Vasilis. And since then, uh, we we kept, of course, you know, looking at each other's work. So it was it, it wasn't that hard to, to join forces again.
1: So I'm going to ask both of you the same question and and we'll let Stavros go first on this one. What's the best and the hardest part about working with family?
3: Um, The best is that um, I'm going to go a few years back uh, when I first moved to Seattle for my PhD. um, Theo was in Los Angeles and I was in Seattle and we have family in Vancouver, BC, actually. They're uh, a rather large family, there, are uh, cousins and, uh, and uncles and aunts and, uh, and they're all very Greek, uh, Greek-Canadian. Uh, so they invited me and I think Theo as well uh, to spend uh, Christmas with them. So we went there and we spent maybe several days, maybe a week. And, you know, after years of or maybe two or three years of essentially living alone uh, in Seattle, I found myself surrounded by extended family. And I remember uh, feeling like, how lucky are these people? You know, they are in a, I'm going to call it first world country. Uh, you know, they have good jobs, they're happy, uh, but they also have their family with them. Whereas my family, uh, my brother is in Los Angeles and my parents are in Greece and I'm just here alone. Right. So, so ever since that realization, I felt really um, happy for them. But at the same time, I wish I was in their shoes. So ever since that realization, I always dreamed of, of working closer with Theo, or maybe being a little closer uh, with my parents, which might explain my temporary move back to Greece uh, for my cardiology fellowship. And so there is always there always has been this longing to be closer to family because that's how we were raised. Um, so so just being close in physical proximity with Theo. Even if we don't see each other for two weeks, it doesn't matter because I know he's 30-minute drive from where I live. Uh, that's the best thing. The physical proximity, there is nothing that replaces it. Um, even Zoom cannot replace that.
0: Um, yeah, I, I, I feel what you're saying, especially coming from... Uh, I, I think some of these Southern European cultures are very similar to the cultures that I come from as well. So I, I could definitely relate to the large families and and the personal bonds that you develop in and all of that between cousins and, and family members and especially siblings. So, yeah. So,
1: My entire family, even my extended family, we all fit in one car. I know nothing about what you guys are talking about. It's so foreign to me. And I love, that's why I love watching you guys.
0: So, the so Theo, do you guys fight?
3: Yeah. So, that I was going to say that there is a downside to being so close to an immediate family, which is, and working especially with them, which is, uh, you know, how uh, natural it is for me to um, um, take the, the brother role at work. So it's you. You actually have to fight the urge to talk to Theo, uh, like my brother, uh, in front of other people uh, with whom we have professional relationships, right? So I really have to uh, talk to him and to uh, address him as a uh, as a PI, as a scientist, or as an employee of Northwell, and it's it really takes some active effort for me to do that. Uh, so I know it doesn't. It's not a big deal, but. But when I don't do it, it becomes a big deal. <laughs> uh, so there have been times I have to say that I was not very professional with him, and probably he was not very professional with me because we just, you know, we just talk like like two Greek brothers. You know what I mean? And and that again turned heads, and they're like, "What are these guys doing right now? Are they like fighting in front of us? Are they serious?" <laughs> so.
1: But when that, when that happens, you guys, I've seen it happen on multiple occasions, but you guys do it in Greek. And it's it's such a, a passionate um, part of, of your culture that we could never tell. It's like, are they about to kill each it's other? It's only or they because gonna, they don't you want know, you to listen and their- learn
0: all the abuses, Jojo. That's exactly why. I, I know how the I, brain okay. of a non-English speaking person works. But uh, I'm, I'm, I would love for Theo and Stavros to disagree, but I assume... That's probably why they don't want you to learn all the code words that they use to abuse each other.
2: So so there is a benefit on, on uh, having a second language that very, very few uh, other people understand. That is absolutely true. Uh, that we can, uh, although it's it's always very rude to turn it on uh, in front of others, right? So we're not, we promise not to do that in, in this podcast at least. Um, well, sometimes but,
3: we argue in English, by the
0: way.
2: Yeah, of course. We can definitely do that too. <laughs> yeah, that's not, it's not <laughs> there are infinite
0: possibilities <laughs> for
2: arguing. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll second Stavros in, in saying that it's sometimes hard to maintain a bit more of a Professional relationship and a way of speaking, but I think, uh, and and a lot of times when I speak to him on the phone or when I when we even like sit down and discuss, as Jojo said, a lot of people are like, "Are are you guys okay? Are you are you fighting?" And it's really just us talking. It's just the way we are talking. I guess it's just one elevated tone above. You know the usual way that uh, uh, that I guess English, uh, American or or British people just talk to each other, or civilized I guess people talk to each other.
1: So you you mentioned though that I mean the Greek representation in in Neurotech, you you have the secret language because there there aren't a ton of Greeks, but there is a a pretty serious concentration, and it's kind of called the Greek mafia. Is that really a thing? Uh, I don't obvious. know
2: if it's a thing. Uh, there are a lot of uh, scientists that, uh, that you know, way, way bigger scientists than us that actually inspired us to that uh, happened to be from Greece. So Nikos Logothets would be one, and then uh, Nikos Hatsopoulos would be another one. Like uh, all these, and I, I'm sure I, I forget a lot, uh, but there are all these big uh, neuroscience names that we kind of like look up to. So there is a, there has been... A, 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 a quite vibrant Greek community in neuroscience, and uh, we just joined that. I don't think there's a mafia per se, but we do like to I, occasionally, you know, in at SFN or at various conferences, we tend to attract each other and congregate. So uh, all of a sudden, you're surrounded by loud Greeks that drink a lot, and that's, I guess, something that stays in the memory. So...
3: But, but, you know, I don't think that Greeks tend to uh, form uh, fractions where they go outside of Greece. That's not my experience. Uh, maybe, it's, uh, maybe I'm biased, but um, I think that Greeks are fairly individualistic people. Um, and if they end up working together, uh, it's because it kind of made sense, not because they're Greek. That's my impression. Uh, I don't know, maybe uh, Jojo, you being in the West Coast or Arun being in the UK, you have a different uh, experience. My experience is that, you know, they will do their own thing. And, you know, if there is another Greek living nearby or working in the same field, sure, they're gonna have a beer with them. uh, But but we're not actively looking for Greeks to work. At least that hasn't been my experience
0: no to be honest i think i think it's 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 a perception right i mean i think i think the perception is is both true and false like i think I th- let me actually give you the opposite view right uh from my perspective if there was another kind of say a similar brown man who was who was who is a fellow scientist or other things I mean you are of course going to talk to them and you're going to communicate to them in whatever language that you feel comfortable and just because and this is part i think of we, we did a, a couple of episodes ago we did we did a series of 3 episodes on kind of bias and diversity and inclusion in science etc it's almost taken because this most of the most of the academia etc is Towards the northern hemisphere, with with a bunch of work that's happening in South America and Australia, et cetera, right? So we almost take it for granted that that the license to speak, or the only license to speak, is in one language. Of course, you don't want to upset any any type of sensitivities there, but you know what? Uh, screw that! Like, I mean, if you if you have a language that you feel comfortable, and if that basically enables you to communicate what you need to communicate to the other person. That's great. I mean, w- w- there is no reason. I think. I think it is more about. Um, it- it's. It's. I think. I think it was a funny way of us asking. Um, can we actually kind of? There are many different people in neurotech, and, and how can we kind of? Uh, what's the mentality behind that? And I, and I think it's it's very interesting that Stavros. I think when you kind of said it, you kind of almost say it from a very sympathetic kind of answer to that bias when it actually the question itself was supposed to be provocative uh, in a way. So that kind of tells you about the mentality of what, how an immigrant views a particular question to how a non-immigrant kind of views a particular question, right? So it, it's, it's very, very interesting the way you kind of um, reply to that question. So coming back to your experiences. So Theo, you are actually an engineer. Um, I think you mentioned that you have, a lot of background in terms of 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 computer science and, and aspects of kind of machine learning and 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 uh, aspects of that. Whereas Stavros, you actually have a very clinical background, and I mean I'm very impressed by the fact that you actually were able to go into kind of neuroscience and and cardiology and other things. I mean, my personal experience was that the very first time. Um, that I saw a brain in 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 a in a morgue in in a cadaver dissection, I hated it because it had no form. It was just like this goop that was there on, on the table, and that's when I decided that I'm not going to study the brain. It was more of a visceral reaction. I ended up studying, doing cardiovascular work because everything was beautiful, right? Everything was very structured. You could make sense if you knew Ohm's law. You could make sense of every goddamn thing in in cardiovascular science with respect to blood pressure and ECG and a whole host of other things. But you actually have, both of you have made that transition really well from one discipline to the other and you kind of go back and forth and uh, tell us a bit about, give us a little bit of information uh, or insight into your psyche when you kind of go and when you apply. Which language do you think? Do you actually think in the language of neuroscience or do you actually think in the language of Engineering in your case, Theo, or Stavros, in your case, do you actually think about more from a clinical perspective and what that means to a particular research problem that you both are addressing? Uh,
2: okay, I, I can go, I, I guess. Uh, so the, I think to me, the, uh, the, the main language that I speak is engineering, and, and a lot of times that is uh, to the detriment of people understanding what I'm trying to say. And uh, that's a learning curve to try to change the way you're uh, what what you're trying to say, so that uh, when you're doing in interdisci- disciplinary research, that your collaborators actually understand you. Also, um, it takes a lot of years of training to start thinking like a scientist, let alone a neuroscientist. Uh, so that was another effort uh, that was. Uh, from my part, at least, it wasn't th- straightforward, and I keep on learning how to, you know, form hypotheses, uh, study design, and design experiments, and uh, you know, the, the, the data analysis and everything else is, is pretty straightforward. But really, the, the other part, um, so to me, that that has been, I guess, like the the learning curve uh, doing my PhD is to take my engineering way of thinking and language and try to adapt it to uh, to science, to neuroscience and and, and by electronic medicine?
3: Um, I, I think I only speak one language. Uh, and my guess is that it's the same language since I was in medical school. I was really fascinated by the language of science. And I really believe that it's one language, um, that... Uh, people who are in science uh, pretty much more or less all speak. The difference, the differentiation between engineers and physicians and scientists is about the questions they ask. But I think they use the same language to ask and answer these questions. Um, I, when I was doing uh, my PhD and my postdoc, more the P- on the PhDs uh, during the PhD years, The questions we were asking with uh, Eb and and Jeff and George were uh, very basic scientific questions. So what is the organization of the motor cortex? And when we record signals from the brain, uh, what do those signals tell us about the way cells fire and cells communicate and the way they communicate uh, with each other? then during my postdoc, I, lit, I did a little bit more neural engineering. So we did a lot of experiments with uh, implantable electronics and recordings and uh, closed loop neurostimulation. So the question, the, the, the language was still the same, but the question was a little more applied, right? Uh, and ever since I moved to Feinstein, because it is a translational uh, research institute, um, I, I think I keep using the same language like before, but now the questions are a lot more translational. Uh, I still uh, worry about the basic science component of them. I still care a lot about the engineering component of them. Uh, But I think now the question uh, became how to translate, uh, you know, engineering principles and basic science findings into potentially at some point, a therapy uh, or a diagnostic uh, method. So
1: I know... when you guys moved to the Feinstein, just under a year apart, you know it takes a long time to get things set up and going, and all of the hiring headaches that happen getting your lab started. What, maybe on the same theme of language, what are some of the the things that you have been able to accomplish in your your more recent papers and and discoveries, and and can you tell us about those in somewhat layman's terms?
2: Sorry, you want to go first on this?
3: I keep on going first. That's right. Um, so I think the biggest accomplishment that I consider um, I had was setting up the lab. It's it, I had no idea it would be that difficult. You know, I have to be very honest with you. It was, and I think people tend to downplay that, and we only focus on our papers and grants and, and accomplishments. But but like Jojo said, hiring the people, retaining the good people and building the capabilities, the, uh, the physiology stations, the relationships with, uh, with the IACUC, with, uh, with the administration of an institute, um, even building a small network of people that can maybe refer people uh, to be hired or to work with. That was very difficult. It took a lot of energy. It took a lot of balancing uh, acts at multiple levels, at different times. Um, I really think that's like 90% of my accomplishment I consider it to having set up a lab that is I think a healthy lab uh, in the sense that uh, people can speak their minds uh, between themselves and with me. Uh, they uh, they understand the need to become somewhat focused on, on certain big projects, but at the same time, they have the freedom to explore their own interests um, and and they, while at the same time uh, remaining relatively productive, I think in terms of paper paper output, um, I think the papers um, are more important. Of course, it's part of it's it's the product of our uh, intellectual and and physical work. Um, I, I think we try to fill a, a gap here at Feinstein, which was the uh, the more um, um, I'm going to say biophysical uh, engineering uh, principles of interfacing with the nervous, and surgical uh, uh, principles of interfacing with the nervous system, uh, especially with the vagus, uh, to uh, to open new um, uh, possibilities uh, for bioelectronic medicine. Uh, the Feinstein, uh, Kevin, and, and his group, and others at Feinstein, I mean, they have been working on this for, for decades right so, so scientifically speaking and in terms of um, in terms of ideas about the potential applications of this technology uh, we came into this very mature uh, environment uh, but I think our contribution was more on the okay can we, um, can we think a little more uh, technically about the interface? Can we think a little more technically about the way we stimulate or record from the nervous system? And I think Theo will speak to that as well, uh, because I think his contribution was also uh, somewhat similar from from a different perspective. Um, uh, In in that, um, I think coupled with the uh, expertise in the translational uh, science and the understanding of the molecular and the circuit mechanisms, uh, behind biotechnology medicine is a very good, uh, you know, uh, a very good fit for for what Feinstein was before us and uh, what it is now. Yeah, I, w- I would add to that that uh, um, so
2: for at least Stavros, from Stavros' side, one thing that I guess he he didn't want to tout his horn, but uh, I will for him. Uh, he developed uh, some of uh, some some on top of uh, some some deeper understanding of um, different ways of stimulating the nerve. And he also developed a very, very unique, I think it's it's one of the biggest, uh, um, um, I guess, findings or developments for coming from his lab, a very unique uh, interface, chronic interface with uh, the, the mouse vagus nerve. Um, so that's going to, I think, open up tons of possibilities for preclinical research when it comes to bioelectronic medicine. The fact that now for the first time, very reliably someone can interface with uh, the chronic uh, in a chronic way uh, days after days on the same animal with a vagus nerve, which was a, an extremely hard technically uh, project um, for us. I would say uh, uh as Tavros said, building the lab was a great challenge, and I think we're in a in a good uh, place now. We have uh, really uh, great people that uh, that work in the lab, and they work uh, together very very well. Although they haven't seen each other for a year now, I guess. But um, um, I think for for us, uh, uh, another <clears throat> what I'm actually proud of is that we're kind of like walking into uh, different uh, uh, tracks. Uh, we have two main thrusts in the lab and the first one is pure bioelectronic electronic medicine and uh, kind of understanding how the nervous system senses the function of either the immune or the metabolic or, or other systems. Uh, but um, the other one uh, would be uh, the, our, our shift for the past two years to try to uh, leverage all the different tools and expertise that we have on machine learning in in, uh, um, in medical, let's say data and, and transfer it to um, uh, multiple healthcare data now modalities. So we're being part of Northwell, we have access to one of the largest and most diverse electronic medical records in the country. And that puts us in a unique position to start asking uh, uh, Different, very clinical questions. Uh, so we started that way before COVID hit, uh, and when COVID hit, it uh, we were kind of ready to take that to the next level and really start uh, developing uh, uh, COVID-specific models and try to help out uh, uh, some uh, physicians or nurses in the front lines. And that was a very exciting although kind of depressing on what we were hearing from the, from them, but a very exciting time for, for the whole lab because it really felt that uh, we could develop something that could help potentially uh, patients almost immediately or in a matter of months, which is a, I mean, as an engineer, you kind of dream about the uh, ch- uh, challenges and opportunities like that where something that you develop can be used in the clinic and, help somebody, either the the, the frontline worker, the um, the physician or the nurse or the patient. So that's that's kind of like our, our main...
0: So uh, that actually caught my attention kind of a few months ago when on, I think it was, I don't remember if it was on Twitter or LinkedIn, where I think one of you had posted some of the results of some of the work that you have done with the electronic medical records and, and the patient outcomes. So can can one of you kind of give us a good summary of what type of work that you did in that, which was using employing real world kind of patient data uh, during the COVID times. And what was the outcome of that particular data mining efforts to inform healthcare that you were doing? Because that was pretty interesting to follow
2: Yeah, as well. It kind of like deviates a bit from like the traditional electronic medicine approach, but it, it was, I think a good, Opportunity. So, as I said, we have access to this large electronic medical record from 23 different hospitals, 700 outpatient clinics. So, we're talking about thousands and thousands of patients and all their vitals, labs, uh, medic meds, that, are, that.
0: And the epicenter of the whole COVID outbreak exactly. a few months ago as well, yeah. right? Yeah. So, in terms of location, mm-hmm. that you guys were at, yeah. yeah. So, so
2: very early in the pandemic, like around April or March, we were able to spin out one. Uh, a, a specific model, a, calcula- a survival calculator, that could be used very readily as soon as somebody showed up in the emergency department, uh, using very uh, easily to acquire quantitative uh, data, uh, measurable, not uh, uh, subjective data, uh, and that we 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 re- we immediately made that available to all our doctors. So that started uh, being used almost. <clears throat> Immediately by many doctors, we've got uh, many emails that were saying that, oh, that actually helps uh, risk stratify our patients, make sure that we keep an eye on like the ones that are most severe. Uh, At that specific time point, everybody was just uh, really, really hungry for any kind of information about this disease because uh, a lot of people were dying and we didn't necessarily know why. Um, Since then, we uh, created a couple more uh, models like that. Uh, one for 48-hour respiratory failure. Uh, we also have a couple of other models that we're uh, working on different outcomes related to the to the disease. Um, but I would also say that we're actively uh, uh, working on combining and augmenting the already large electronic medical record with other modalities. So we're working with natural language processing to to integrate the medical notes to this and extract information from that. We're working with uh, computer vision, deep learning algorithms to extract features from X-ray and CT scans. Um, Again, there is a lot, we were also working on on some other uh, methods to integrate into EMR Continuous vitals from sensors that are being placed in in, in patients uh, and measure continuously their uh, their vitals instead of like every three three to four to five hours. Um, so that that has been kind of like the the focus of of this effort, and that started before. Covid, but it really ramped up during COVID. Like, oh, before it was, you know, one or two people out of the lab and during COVID, mainly because we couldn't do anything else, um, the whole uh, lab kind of uh, focused on on this effort.
1: So you both have had a, a pretty early and significant success in terms of creating something that makes an immediate impact, an immediate difference. Theo, you with the, the COVID modeling and prediction algorithms and and stavros you with the the chronic interface in the mouse model, which a lot of people don't realize that that's not only really difficult, but it's really important because most of the mouse mo- or most of the disease models are actually found in mice rather than rats. Um, but mice are significantly smaller and present even bigger challenges in that area. Um, so that that is an an impressive accomplishment
0: Especially for immune yeah. function uh, understanding. Yeah. yeah. So
1: those those two things are really significant. And I'm I'm if you're not overwhelmingly proud, I know I am just by virtue of knowing you guys. Um, but what frustrates you about research?
3: Um, I'm. I would say I'm frustrated Thank by you. how difficult it is. <laughs> research is very difficult. Um, I don't think we talk enough about it. and uh, it, It's difficult because it's um, it's difficult enough to set up things to be able to ask scientific questions. And then on top of that, when you start asking the questions, you get hit by reality, which most of the times your hypotheses are wrong. I mean, that is a very demoralizing profession. You know, you spend years preparing, and when you're finally prepared, most of your ideas are just... Wrong. Um, and you still have to keep doing it. And you still have to m- remain productive and apply for grants. So, uh, but you know what? Um, it, it's very frustrating. Uh, but it's a, a, if you think about it, sometimes I, I, I remind the people in the lab, in our lab meetings, that it's an insane privilege to get paid uh, throughout your life to think. I mean, that's what scientists are paid for. Uh, you know, we make. Uh, you know, uh, society uh, gives us money so that we can think. And that's a huge privilege the way I see it. Uh, So it doesn't matter how frustrated I am. And I can get very frustrated. And Theo knows that (laughs) Uh, on our phone calls or meetings, I've I've been very, very frustrated with different things, practical and scientific. uh, But uh, it's all worth it in the end. If that's what you care for uh, in life, to get to, um, you know, the the truth behind some important questions, uh, I think science is probably the, uh, you know, one of the few ways of getting there. So it's it definitely worth it for me.
2: Yeah, for me, I guess, on top of what Stavros said, is I'm sometimes frustrated by how large proportion of, Success, whatever you want to uh, call success, is is luck, uh, and uh, and a lot of times, and I and I, you know, I, I can uh, say that I've been lucky a lot of times to to stumble upon something that turned out to work, uh, and also I was lucky enough to, you know, maybe get some good reviewers for some of my papers, and uh, and of course you only remember and focus on the on the on reviewer number two or number three. Uh, that that really killed that amazing paper. So uh, yeah, that, that, as Savro said, this is a a, a profession that uh, you get hit almost every day with thousands of rejections uh, throughout your career, and uh, when something goes through, it's rarely um, uh, that satisfied. At the, at the point that you know a paper is published, first of all, you might not even uh, um, recognize it from all the different changes that you've necessarily done due to the reviewer uh, feedback which a lot of times is really good um, but also you're kind of sick of it uh, and, and I and I sometimes I say to the the people of, of my lab if you're not sick of the paper most probably you haven't worked hard enough uh, uh, to, to prepare it for for publication and the same goes with the grants now that we're writing grants again the same it, it's kind of like uh, when you when you hit that point when you really cannot read this one more time, you are sick of it. That's a good point to be. That most probably now it's ready to, to be submitted. So that's the. I guess the the yeah a couple of I guess um, uh, frustrations that I have. But overall, I, I would agree with uh, Stavros. I mean, that's why we're doing this. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a great great privilege to work with young people to ask really cool questions to get paid to do so. All of these. Uh, it's just, it's it's a lot of fun and just doing it at the cutting edge of whatever field you're at.
0: And I think the funny thing about what you were mentioning there, Theo, was that it's always, I think there's a general trend in most of the publications that I've actually uh, published, uh, articles that I've published, it's always reviewer two or reviewer three, especially reviewer two. Uh, it's rarely reviewer one, so I don't know if there is any sort of correlation to to the number and the type of comments that they actually give or how tough they could be. Uh, but it just it just uh, it's very rarely is reviewer one, right? Reviewer one is always the one who's most supportive in most of my my publications and I just don't get it. I, I don't know what the correlation to number and, and reviewer co- reviewer comments I, are.
2: I think there's a, a recent article out there. Uh, I'll try to find it and maybe send it your way where it's actually, they, they clean the, the name of reviewer two and it's reviewer three now. That's, that's the worst apparently. Um, so yeah, people are really actively looking into it and, you know, doing the proper research on on, on making sure we, we assign blame to the right reviewer number, but you're right. Yeah, there's something. But reviewer one usually is is, is a, a better uh, nicer reviewer.
3: It well, it would be the time they spend on the manuscript. So the less time you spend on the manuscript, the earlier you turn in your review, the more positive your comments are. So they you end up being reviewer one. <laughs> the more time you
0: spend, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway,
1: or the editors. Structuring it like an essay, so you've got you've got the intro, you've got the the success, then you have the detractor, and then you have the conclusion. Yeah, I don't think
2: they put so much so much effort so on this, so, Jojo. I think you're giving the editors, and we've been in, in that position a lot of credit, and I don't. It's it's more, uh, maybe it's something. Else.
1: So, how do you approach reviewing? Do you review papers, and and how how do you make sure that you are fair and balanced, but not Fox <laughs> News?
2: Yeah. Uh, and well, from my end, I mean, of course, we do review papers, and and from my end, I think the the, the most important part is to uh, I I'll, I try to to read it and and find uh, what is the main uh, what is the main point that or the main hypothesis that's being tested and whether that has been uh, adequately uh, presented. But also, I kind of feel like I want to to understand it uh, in not 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 spend an enormous amount of, mind, of time understanding what the paper says. It should be uh, straightforward for somebody in the field to be able to understand what's the methodology, what's the point. And, and I mean, standard practices for all reviewers. So I, I hope I, I'm not too harsh or too uh, lenient uh, and, and hit the right balance. But it's always, I mean, reviewing a paper is almost like an art. It's, it's the same way as writing it. And actually, the, the, one of the main reasons of why why I think people should be reviewing papers is it helps you by judging other people's work. You're you know you're in that responsible position to 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 to, to be credible and think about it deeply, and that helps you write better papers and structure studies yeah. better. So yeah, um, I think that's it. It it's. It's a chore for a lot of times, uh, you know, especially in busy times, all of a sudden you have, you know, three or four reviews to do and, and, and sometimes you just spend the weekends doing it. But uh, at the same time, it's also a privilege to, you know, to do it and, and judge other people's and your colleagues' work and uh, and also you learn a lot from it.
0: Yeah, and I think the best reviews are always the ones that are tough and fair but yet so constructive in 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 furthering the work. Um, that that's that's wonderful. Thanks for sharing that, Theo and Stavros. That's that's great to hear. Um, you also have a very good friend slash acquaintance, slash colleague in the area in the industry, which is 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 Dr. K uh, of of Erstwhile Nevro, currently kind of Nisos, um, et cetera. So um, Given that, I think th- I think the, the. Do you have any interest in pursuing industry in between the two of you, or are you both kind of happy about exploring your academic pastures here, uh, as as you've been doing for the last few years now?
3: Um, I think we're lucky that we work in neurotechnology. Uh, that's a discipline that has very close ties with the industry, and. Uh, even though our function right now is is academic, um, I don't think either of us misses industry too much because we actually talk to them on a very regular basis and we work with them. We have ongoing collaborations with uh, General Electric um, working on uh, ultrasound neuromodulation. Theo mostly works with Konstantinos uh, with uh, on uh, non-invasive uh, neurostimulation. Um, so even though we don't work in the industry, uh, we are quite close to it, um, and I think we're both very happy with it. Um, so if all goes well and we can continue doing this, you know, uh, pursuing our academic interests while helping people in the real world to get products into the into patients' hands and physicians' hands, that that's a very good uh, place to be for me.
2: Yeah, I, I would add that. Uh... If I can be Konstantinos, maybe I, I would really severely, uh, seriously think about uh, uh, transitioning. But uh, you know, is a is a rare uh, case of like, extreme success, uh,
0: so not everyone can be like him. So, <laughs> but, but definitely want to emulate, though. I w- absolutely. I mean, I think I, 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 uh, it's 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 a great story, oh, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, and, and and just like Stavros, who's kind of moved from cardiology to neuroscience into research and clinical, etc. I think his transition from from business to science, back to business to science, and then doing the science of business or business of science, however you want to call it, I think it's 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 fantastic. So a story of 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 very inspirational stuff for sure. Absolutely, that's um, why we
2: love working with him. And uh, yeah. yeah, he's he's a visionary, and uh, I mean he's. He's a good friend. And, uh, like, I mean, we come from the same lab, too. So we have a lot of things that that tie us. And, yeah, there's also that that Greek thing that might might also play a role.
0: Not a bad thing at all.
1: So on on a similar line... You don't, um, you don't necessarily miss the commercial opportunities because you have a hand in that. And I know Feinstein is sort of a rare bird in that it's not a university, but it's a very active research institute with some academic affiliations. Do you guys teach, or do you miss teaching?
3: We we don't teach. Uh, we I would say we're almost hundred percent research. Uh, we do have. Uh, academic affiliations with uh, Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell, which is like 15 minute drive from here uh, in Long Island. Um, if if we wanted to, and I think we may, uh, we can teach uh, classes there. Uh, we had a short stint, Theo and I, and Tamir and, and Lauren uh, this year with New York Institute of Technology, which is also in the neighborhood. Uh, We taught about electronic medicine course to engineers, Um, so I would say I don't miss uh, teaching that much because I never really did it. I was a TA for a couple of courses during my PhD, Um, but I think you know we we have the option of teaching. Uh, We we just not do it too much these days. I I would say I I, again
2: uh, I taught. Two classes. So the, uh, right before Stavros came, we also had a electronic medicine class at Feinstein. So I essentially, in this like four and a half years that I've been with the Feinstein, I taught twice, <laughs> which is not a lot. Uh, so l- really, our focus is research. Uh, but I, one thing that I, I I would say is that I definitely don't miss teaching at Zoom. I I, I did that this year. And it was uh, a, a really weird and actually not that pleasant experience because, frankly, I had no idea whether anybody was listening to me. It, it felt like I, I was just speaking to a microphone for two and a half, three hours. And um, I, I had no idea whether anyone was not only understanding me, but even just paying attention. So that felt pretty lonely <laughs> for, for that amount of time.
3: From 6.30, it has that, but, yeah. From 630 to 8.30. <laughs> at that point, people are, have, have had their dinner already and half of them probably were asleep. We had no idea of knowing. It was pretty weird.
2: Well, I, yeah, one of my classes was that election day, so I knew nobody was listening to me. I, I, that was that was definitely <laughs> the case. So, and, I, and I kind of acknowledged it. I said, look, you know, I realize most probably you're going to watch it, like taped later, and nobody's going to listen to me now, but I have to do it at this time, so I'll do it.
0: Yeah, so that is one thing that I actually still miss to this date is actually teaching because I taught for almost um, four out of my five and a half years of 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 my PhD uh, every single term because we had quarters at at, at the university that I was uh, so I almost thought for, for every quarter except for the summer quarter um, and then I also still managed to do some. Um, some additional kind of classes while I was a postdoc as well, just because my professor, group of professors that I worked with kind of loved having that help. Uh, so that is one thing that I missed when I moved to the industry, because as you can probably see, I like talking and, and it's a bit of a split personality in my personal life. I don't like to talk, but I think in my professional lives I just talk all the time, which is both good and bad. Uh, so it's probably a good thing that they stopped me from teaching. Um, having said that, I think, uh, where where are you taking your work uh now from from here on um Theo and Stavros i mean you've kind of done a lot of the of the uh engineering based approach in your case Theo and then with respect to kind of looking at electronic medical records and then looking at neurotechnology in your case Stavros so where are where are the Zanos brothers going with their research what should we look forward in the next say 3 years and 5 years uh from from today
2: Tavros, you want to start?
0: Okay.
3: I think uh, for the next few years, um, what I want to do, uh, who knows if it's going to happen, is uh, start or continue um, applying the tools that we developed, uh, the preclinical tools we developed, uh, and, and one of them being the chronic implants in not just mice, by the way, rats and pigs, Uh, that we have done we have developed uh, you know all these neurostimulation paradigms the biomarkers uh, and start really uh, applying them in diseases we've already started doing it um, in uh, a disease called uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension we get some very uh, good preliminary very uh, i would say compelling preliminary results from it Um, but there are other diseases that we're interested in uh, and not just immune Uh, Metabolic diseases, uh, uh, diabetes, um, cardiovascular diseases, uh, heart failure, uh, especially of the right ventricle. Um, So I think it's going to be translational mostly um, um, output, hopefully, uh, but with, I want to think, with very solid control of the uh, interface component of it, not just, uh, you know, we just turned on the switch and this thing happened um, as it maybe was the case many many years ago now a lot more people are becoming much more sophisticated in their neural interfacing uh, but uh, but i think that's where my lab is heading.
2: And as for us i think the um i think that the 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 the, the general direction is to start uh, merging the two main thrusts so we have a thrust on 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 decoding and uh, and analyzing and developing algorithms for bioelectronic medicine devices and then we also have the other thrust of uh, the uh, machine learning for healthcare data and I think there is a, a, a unique opportunity to take uh, learn lessons from the second and start applying it on the first when it comes to uh, any, anything from you know just enriching the data that these devices will work on to patient selection for clinical trials. There's a lot of opportunities I think there that we could start looking into um, that people have already looking lo- start looking into that I would start, I would like to to explore and of course just keep uh, working on both thrusts to by, by themselves to. To, to bring them closer to the clinic to start some, some uh, clinical studies, some uh, uh, clinical trials, possibly with some of these algorithms that we're pushing out. That would be great in the next uh, two to three years and, and start focusing on either specific patient populations or just in general on, uh, um, uh, on hospitalized patients.
0: So, and I think there is one interesting, uh, I was expecting both of you with your experience and with your past work in the COVID uh, area in the last year to actually say one thing, but I'd, uh, because you didn't say it, I'm going to offer it to you uh, as a suggestion for you to pursue. Um, given, and especially Stavros, I think I think as, as, as somebody with a training in cardiology, you definitely know that the impact of COVID as a, a respiratory disease extends far beyond just what the symptoms and, and what they felt, even in patients who have recovered. So it would be very, very, very interesting to follow through some of the long-term cardiac complications, especially in terms of of impact on on diastolic function that actually happens in these in patients because it is already starting with all the pericarditis and and kind of pleuritis and all the things that actually happens with restricts lung motion and 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 kind of cardiac filling etc i think that one is going to be very interesting to follow and ultimately see how we are actually going to deal with all of those sequelae because that's almost it looks like it's around 15 to 20% And given the numbers in the US, I mean, it's a bit scary as to what one can actually imagine is going to happen as a long-term complication of COVID uh, here. So something to definitely wait and watch. And I'm sure the methods that you guys have in your... Hands is definitely going to kind of come to fruition on that. So, uh, please do please do look at that one important factor because I think that's extremely important and will have a direct impact on on public health. I agree, hundred
3: percent, Arun. And I think the next uh, versions editions of uh, Harrison's Internal Medicine and Brownwald's Heart Disease will have separate chapters for these uh, for these topics. I'm hundred percent with you on that. The the uh, for me because uh, I thought about it. Uh, the The challenge is to get a, uh, a relevant animal model of this COVID infection uh, in a rodent. So, um, so that's where I think the you know, and I'm sure there are people working on that, and maybe they have already have some results on it. But I think that's the that's what will really uh, liberate uh, preclinical research on, on COVID. Uh, hopefully, we'll have that soon.
2: Yeah, I mean. I would I would second that for us that's definitely I didn't mention it I guess specifically but it's definitely one of the next projects that we're working on and and what we're start we already started like looking at the sixteen thousand uh, uh, patients that went through our hospitals and got discharged and Carlo kind of tried to fo- and and they have been followed up uh, to see who of them uh, complains about. Long COVID-like symptoms and all these like post-COVID sequelae that that could uh, point to uh, further investigation. So the, uh, you're absolutely right. This is an extremely important and and hot topic that uh, from from our end we're definitely gonna try to pursue.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. I, I'm going to step in and lighten things up a bit. Cause this is kind of my whole role in all of neurotechnology is to get everybody back to the bar and drinking. So, um, both of you are, or were DJs and, and Stavros, I know you had to, you used to have your YouTube channel and Theo, I found you on SoundCloud before you even started at the Feinstein and you've done a couple parties for me and then, and Sleeman Bensmaya and, um, what are you guys doing now for fun outside of work?
2: So I DJ at my uh, living room. I, I occasionally do that. Uh, a couple of days ago, I I just put on like the Daft Punk vinyls that I had just as a tribute to them breaking up. Uh, but again, music is, has been one of those things that I copied from the, the older brother. So he... Uh, from early on had this very, um, you know, almost obsessive uh, uh, attitude towards uh, electronic music and, 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 you know, 70s music and funk and, and all that and, and rare grooves and uh, I kind of like followed along and then I started really doubling down on it as I was actually making more money as a DJ rather than as a PhD student in, at the, in LA um so <laughs> that
0: almost took a not much
3: you could be making two dollars an hour and you would still be making more money as a dj
0: <laughs> yeah. dj zanos yeah. what, what are you guys called dj zanos or yeah or, well, what, I just what, use my name i i i didn't think
2: it was something to be ashamed of maybe <laughs> the people that were hearing me play that would have a different opinion <laughs> but uh uh, the no the I mean it was just a thing that that's a lot of fun it's it's always like an an idea that uh, you know I I love as as Tavros I guess I love mu- hearing to music and I also would like whenever I hear like a really good uh, song or something that that's worthwhile to me I always want to have other people listening to it so I remember like always like recording all these mixtapes or CDs and giving them to my 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 friends uh, so. It's always been a, a huge joy to play for others. That's why I, I really like DJing. Um, but yeah, now, uh, staying at home, listening to music, maybe making a nice Negroni on the side, that's that's kind of like how I spend my nights.
3: <laughs> well, I wish I, I had good things to say about my free time this year in particular. I, I, I frankly don't. Um, Not that I don't have free time, I have free time, it's just that it's not fun anymore. Uh, Because what do I do in my free time? I basically stay home, you know, uh, maybe, I don't know, listen to some music. I used to go out running, now it's just too cold to go run outside. So likely I have this uh, silly bike that I, uh, in the basement. Uh, But that's not really, you know, having fun in free time. I know I miss going out, I miss going to restaurants, going to the city. Uh, you know, hanging out with people outside of the house. We just don't do that anymore. Um, I just can't wait for this COVID thing to, to you know, to finish. And and for us to get back to some sense of normality. It's It's been enough. Um,
1: Stavros, I'm with you. My garage is immaculate. There isn't anything in my garage that hasn't been organized at least three times in the past year. So, um, and yeah. and and anybody who knows me knows I I I need to get back to the bars for everyone's sake. It's important. Well, thank you guys so much for for joining us. It's been a blast. You guys are always fun to talk to, and and um, we're looking forward to, to getting this uh, episode out to everybody. To to hear more about the Xanos brothers and all the great things that you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank,
0: Thank you so much. Well, Aaron. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it's a pleasure. The clips are officially owned and is a property of Scraps, a brand jointly owned by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. No reproduction of content should be undertaken without the permission. Sainthan Chandran was the editor, and our soundtrack was. By Acetad. And we'll be back soon with another installment of scraps, which is just Sparks, spelled backwards. It really is that simple to remember.